I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 87th Texas Legislature. This week, big man on campus. Like many of you, I haven't spent much time in crowds or far from home since the pandemic kicked into high gear last March. And even double vaccinated, I haven't been eager to. But when my old friend Pete Gallego, the former state lawmaker and U.S. congressman, asked me to give a commencement speech at Sol Ross State University in Alpine, I perked up. Gallego is finishing his first year as president of the university, which is part of the Texas State University system and not insignificantly is his own alma mater. He's class of 82, the first alum ever to lead the place. So the ask was intensely personal to him. He wanted to bring in someone from the outside to both lift up and give advice to the students graduating. Students who remind him of himself way back when. For whatever the reason he thought of me, and while he had no idea how I'd react, to be honest, the ask was personal to me too. I love West Texas and I love Alpine. And I've got a soft spot for Sol Ross's mission, which is to provide the best possible education to a non-traditional student population. A majority of Sol Ross's enrollees are non-white. Nearly 40% would be first in their family to earn a degree. Many are economically disadvantaged. Most come from rural communities where access to broadband, among other things we city folk take for granted, is a real challenge. As someone who's taught college classes in this disrupted world and is the father of a current college sophomore at a public university who's felt cheated, frankly, by the pivot to online, I've been thinking a lot about the rough go students have had. Gallego students have had it particularly rough at a time when so many obstacles, pandemic, economic downturn, winter storm, and all the rest have materialized along the road. So of course I said yes to speaking at their commencement. There's much to celebrate. Of course I said yes to a quick trip to Alpine, my first real foray into the larger world I'd left behind. And of course I thought, as long as I'm out there, I should probably interview Gallego for this podcast to talk about his experience at the helm, opportunities and challenges for higher ed, and his own journey from one kind of public service, the electoral kind, to another. For the record, he's an Alpine native and has a law degree from the University of Texas at Austin to go along with his bachelor's from Sol Ross. He served 22 years in the Texas House and he did one term in the U.S. House. I could be wrong, but I bet neither of those jobs gave him the look of joy and peace on his face when we sat across from one another on the afternoon of Friday, May 7th, day 116 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Lone Star College, now offering bachelor's degrees in nursing, cybersecurity, and energy and manufacturing that are affordable and close to home. More at lonestar.edu. And by Pearson, publisher of Government the Texas Way, the Texas Experience, powered by the Texas Tribune, now updated with the results of the 2020 presidential election. And Texas State Technical College, 
Now with 10 campuses across the state and 20 new 100% online programs, students can learn the skills necessary to start a great new career. More at tstc.edu. And the Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Community Colleges are the state's economic engine for recovery, providing credentials that meet regional and local workforce demands. Visit tacc.org. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Proud to support this conversation because public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texans. I understand this is your, uh, your first in-person. I, I have not done an in-person interview since March 6th of last year. So I may be rusty. And if that happens, people will just forgive it. So, anyway. Well, I'm, I'm happy that Saros got the opportunity to host your, uh, you feel 16 again. This is your coming out party. It is right? absolutely that. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm feeling a little weird about actually being with humans. <laughs> and, and in fact, I thought that's where I would start. This is what it's like to be with people. I almost forgot what it was like to actually interact with people. Now, that may be my perspective coming from where I come from, but you out here, President, in-person is not a strange thing for you. You've been doing in-person, more or less. Well, I'm very proud of the fact that we have had um, in-person classes. Our faculty has volunteered to teach face-to-face. -face. Our students, actually, uh, when we polled them, wanted to be sure that, that they wanted the face-to-face -face interaction. And so we were very strict with our mask mandates right. and, and those kinds of things. But, uh, but we've had great success here with that. And I think this was the end of the semester. I managed to uh, kind of uh, talk to a lot of the students on their way out. And they left happy and they left excited and they were yeah. really uh, uh, content with the experience as a result of the face-to-face -face and the interactions that we did. When you say all year, I mean, take us back to last September or August when school would have started. None of us knew at that time whether this would be a two-year, one-year, three-year. I mean, we're in the middle of this thing that none of us has right. a playbook for, never seen this before. So you didn't start out the school year thinking we're gonna go right back to polling everybody and doing it in person if they want. Surely you held off for a while. You know, the fall semester was an interesting time. What I did was I, I polled the deans and I um, um, actually invited them in. We had real conversations uh, so that it was not my decision alone. I wanted to make sure that the faculty bought in right. to whatever direction we were going. And the idea was that we would do face-to-face. -face. The theory was, that our goal would be to make it to uh, December, right? I mean, that was the goal. And actually, we ended up getting pretty close because we made it to Thanksgiving. And at that point, we had essentially another week to 10 days left of the semester, and we said, you know what, just stay home because when you come back from Thanksgiving, no telling where you've been. We've had a lot of students. Over 10% of our student population, for example, is from El Paso. El Paso has had some challenges with COVID as an example, right? So we said, just stay home. We can do our classes uh, in that last week of school. We can do them online and we can do our finals online. And so we made it pretty close and people were thrilled that we had made it that far through yeah. the year. And then this semester, uh, it looked like things were getting better. We did more face-to-face -face classes and we made it 
all the way through. In fact, our COVID numbers this semester have just really, really been solid. We've not had to use that. We, we set uh, uh, up an entire floor in one of our residence halls uh, as a COVID isolation floor. And in the fall semester, it got full. But this semester, we didn't really have that much, uh, that much traffic in that part. How much of, of the outcome that you describe is about the happenstance of being in this community, right? So this is not Travis County. This is not Bear County. This is not Harris County. This is a rural part of the state. We know that the rural parts of the state have experienced COVID in most cases, not every case, differently. It hasn't been as much of a thing. So is that why you were able to make it through this year so well because of where you are? I think that was only one facet. I, th I think we had incredible cooperation from our faculty, yep. our staff, and our students. That's important. They really bought in. They were very careful about mask usage. They uh, took it very seriously. Well, what was the policy on mask usage? That's one of the things I did want to ask. So, so what did well, you, what we did require, you say? Uh, we up, up until uh, the CDC changed its guidelines last week, we required masks on campus all the time anywhere, right. uh, unless you were in your own Inside, uh, residence outside. hall. Right. right. And so now we, we don't require them as of, I guess, last week when the CDC said you don't have to wear masks outside if, if everybody's been. Uh, and that's the other thing is we actually had great cooperation on the, um, the vaccination, right? We didn't, we, there's, look, there's going to be outliers everywhere. Right. But for the most part, people lined up and uh, we offered regular testing on campus two times a week, sometimes three times a week. Our students participated, our faculty participated. We kept track of those numbers really well. When people had to isolate, they did. And uh, I, I just, I couldn't be prouder of, of the, just right. the way the whole thing went. But of course, as you know, this has been a period of time in which we've had to be forgiving of everybody's individual situations. So if you had students who simply were not comfortable being on campus or families that were vulnerable, right. You gave people the latitude to do oh, this absolutely. off campus. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and so when you return in the fall, we'll come back to the, the year two of, of your presidency here in, in, in a while. But when you come back, are you anticipating having any protocols in place, any capacity limits? What, what are you planning for the fall on that? Well, a lot depends on what the governor tells us uh, we can or can't do. Um, right, because it's not entirely in your hands. It's not. This is I mean, a state university at the end of the day. You bring right? up a good point. I mean, I was <laughs> going to ask you, are you going to require vaccinations to come back to campus in person? Turns out you can't because you're a state university, and the governor has told you he's come over the top, right? And you can't do that. Right. So, I mean, a, a, a lot depends on what the parameters are that the governor sets up for not only us as a university, but frankly for every other university, state university, and every other state agency. Right. You okay with that? I guess we all have bosses, right? He's your boss. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, we're, uh, I, I kind of came of age in, in, that, in that system, and so I, I know it well, and I know what the rules are, and right. we'll, we'll do what we can. But you know what? The truth is, there's so much fresh air in Alpine, Texas, and in this part of the world, right? right? There's just, it, it, and, and the spirit is different. And the, the level of enthusiasm and whatever, I mean, it, it's, right. it's really a different place. So. In that way, place does matter. And, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And so the truth is that whatever the governor's orders uh, are, we'll comply and, right. and we'll comply with a smile, right? We'll, we'll, we'll do it right. We'll do it well. Yeah. I, I spent a lot of time, President Gallego, talking to campus leaders over the last year, as well as the superintendents of school districts, about what I have described and they haven't pushed back on 
as a year from hell. Because for all of you who had big plans for this year, they all got thrown out immediately based on circumstances outside your control. It was, at best, a disrupted year. How disrupted? I mean, you paint a reasonably placid picture of how it wasn't as bad out here as it might have been other places, but surely, as you were thinking about coming into this university as president, you had ideas about how this would go, and everything got disrupted. Fair? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I graduated from Sal Ross in 1982, and since right. 1982, I've wanted to be president of Sal Ross. Right? I, I finally it, got it, your it, dream. I finally got my dream. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I um, will tell you that I never expected to be president during such a challenging time. I think COVID upended everything from having to tell athletes, you can't, your, your sport's going away this semester. We're, right. not, we're not playing football. We're not playing from having to tell uh, clubs and organizations you can't travel, from having to tell you know, uh, some of our students who were looking forward to uh, studying abroad for a semester, you can't go. Um, all of those things, uh, it was a huge challenge, getting faculty buy-in to right. the policies that we were going uh, to implement. Um, and you know, we had everything from people who uh, you know, an employee who came to work uh, uh, for a while in a in a in a hazmat suit to employees who said this is this whole thing is a hoax and it'll blow over in a week, right? And so the the opinions ran the gamut. So it was a challenging time, but at the end of the day, I think we we forged a consensus. Yep. It's a small campus; we all know each other. Yeah. So uh, I think we moved forward together as a group. Th these are all good sort of big picture philosophical things that you wrestle with. I'm thinking about even down to the granular level of things that you have to deal with. Wi-Fi. Let's just talk about Wi-Fi for a second. I have a son who's a sophomore at the University of Texas at Austin. For him, pivoting online to classes was one thing. He's in a big city, plentiful Wi-Fi. We know that in rural parts of Texas, broadband access is a challenge. So I think one stat I saw, 31% of rural households don't have access to high-speed broadband. How hard was it to deal with some of those things that you really couldn't have solved for in advance, not knowing that they would be a thing? We clearly had some infrastructure challenges and still have right. some infrastructure challenges. We had, um, as an example, our capacity um, to do all of our classes online, even if we wanted to, um, it would be rush hour in downtown Austin or downtown Houston or San Antonio because all of the traffic was trying to get through this little tiny pipeline that we had right. out here. And, and so, uh, you know, how do you teach a class that way? Because the, uh, everybody talks slowly, the picture's blurred. The, I mean, it just, it wasn't working. So we really did put a lot of, of thought into trying to, uh, we went from uh, one gigabyte lines to 10 gigabyte lines. Right. So um, now in theory, we're fast. But then we found out that the infrastructure around us is not so great. So you're digging, I mean, literally last week during finals, um, a truck is, uh, you know, there's somebody trenching a ditch in McCamey, Texas, uh, between here and San Angelo, and they dig and they tear the uh, cable. And so the campus is without internet for... In the middle of finals. In the middle of finals, right. you know, for a couple of days. And, yep. and those kinds of things should not be happening. We ought to have a redundancy of systems. So we put in a lot of effort and time to the campus infrastructure, but our infrastructure connects 
to somebody else's infrastructure. Not entirely in your hands. It's not entirely in our hands. Right. And so the idea that somebody in McKamey can cut off literally the entire internet to Sol Ross, that's, that's, that's tell, not Tells you thing. what's wrong with it. And then, of course, Wi-Fi availability is one thing. Device availability is something else. Right. You have poorer students than not. You have students from communities of color. In, you know, majority of your students are communities of color. We'll co come back to that in other ways in a second. And we know that device availability in poor communities and in communities of color is not what it is in the main. And so if you pivot to online, having Wi-Fi access is only one part of it, right? right? So what the university did um, during the, the middle of the pandemic, uh, Dr. Gene Kornstrom and uh, uh, one of our deans, April Alt Altman-Becker, were major champions of providing some hotspots uh, for people who would not otherwise have internet access. Right. And so the university invested in some hotspots, which uh, we sent out, we checked out. They're actually were available to be checked out through the library so that you could take them with you. And uh, we're now, as we go through the, hopefully the end of the pandemic, we're kind of pulling all of that stuff back. Um, but, you know, we also had people on our COVID isolation floor, students who were used to using the computers in the library. Don't have them at home. And right? they don't have them. And so when they're isolated, even here on our COVID quarantine floor, we provided a laptop so they could did do you, their did, did you think about providing laptops for every kid? Was that a discussion at any point? I would love to do that. Right. But in terms of resources and, don't and resources availability, that's, that's not a possibility for us at the present time. But right. that's something that I would absolutely love to yeah. do for our students. Can you quantify yet learning loss, this is a phrase that is more associated with public ed at the moment, where we're hearing a lot of superintendents and principals say, we've got to solve for learning loss over this last year. <clears throat> There's a version of that though in higher ed, is there not? Oh, absolutely. So, what, so what, give, give us a sense of you what know, learning I, loss I will is. tell you that I've talked to a lot of students who are coming back right. in the fall, but who didn't want to come earlier on because the class that they needed was a class that was offered online and they didn't <clears> right. want to do online. So they've lost out their, you know, right there. Uh, we've talked to a lot of people who uh, tell us that they don't get as much out of an online class as they do out of personal interaction. Right. And, and frankly, Soros has been known for our personal interaction with our students, right? They're small classrooms. You have maybe 20 people in a class. And there's nothing you can do to replicate that online. And there's not anything that you can do. So uh, that's certainly been something that we hear about from our students. They come here. I mean, I, yesterday I spent about 30 minutes with a student who, who talked about how fundamental his relationships with his professors had been while he was a student here and how that was a, a critical part of his success. Yeah, and the fact is these kids who've experienced over the last not just a year but a year and a half, because remember halfway through the spring semester of the previous year, that's when everything shut down. Well, and you have to remember... They're not the, going to get that time back. That's no, the point. No, and, and you also have to remember the kind of, of kids that, that, we, uh, that, that come to Sol Ross, right? right? I mean, they tend to be uh, first generation. They tend to be... Right. Uh, uh, their their uh, socioeconomic status is not in the top 1%, for example, of this, of this country. And so these are kids who actually need a little bit yeah. of extra help. They need that personal push right. from our folks, and, and that's hard to give online. Th that is why it's so important to come out to a campus like this one and to understand a student body like this one as opposed to generalizing about higher ed. The, the last year has, in every respect, shown us the racial disparities that have actually existed all along. 
but they've been more visible in a moment like this, whether it's on the pandemic side, the winter storm, how the winter storm affected communities of color. So my point to piggyback on your point would be that any kid would have a hard time, but especially in the more underserved communities that give you kids in your care over here, that's a harder deal. Right. Right. So that and so they're already going through something. They're now going through it even worse. Do, do you worry that this is going to result in more kids opting out of higher ed? One of the concerns, again, on the public ed side, has been declining attendance and declining enrollment. And for them, that has real consequences on the funding side. Right. But putting back on your old legislator hat, you know that, right? Are you going to see a version of that here? Will you have fewer Black and Hispanic kids who attend this university? having endured the last year, not applied? Do you worry about a loss of enrollment? You know, it's interesting because when we track the data, for example, from the Department of Education federally, yeah. and um, the number of people who have filled out a FAFSA form, which is the form that's required financial for financial aid, aid right. is down nationally in really significant numbers. That trend is not really what we're seeing here uh, locally yet. What we're seeing right now is an enthusiasm for people who uh, maybe only took one course and, and now they're coming back, but they want to take three because they want to make up for. So the in fact, fact it's they, the reverse. What we're seeing so far, I mean, right. I, I will tell you, I, I, uh, I need to find some wood to knock on. Yeah. Uh, but uh, right now what we're seeing, and it's early, anything can happen between now and, and next fall. But we're also doing some innovative things on campus to try to uh, bolster our, our numbers, our, our student enrollment. Um, you're not that, just talking about new numbers, but also retaining existing Correct. Because I know you're part of a system, Texas State University system, that has been a leader among the systems in retention year right. over year, and particularly in non-white student retention year right. over year. So right. you've got to apply some of that magic right. here in this moment. And so we're working, and I will tell you that we put in a lot of, you know, um, changes systemically here uh, to build a different culture uh, and a different routine and to make people want to stay. Yeah. Because truthfully, in a small town of 6,000 people out in the wilds of West Texas, you may have somebody who is not necessarily the best fit for Saul Ross. But... You know, one of the things I learned as a member of Congress when I went to go speak uh, in Bayer County to the uh, um, 4-H club, as you've got, that was like a couple of thousand people, right, who at this, at this banquet that was phenomenal. Well, those kids, a lot of them would be great here at Saul Ross and Field. But it really depends on, you know, what kind of audience you're looking for, who wants to come out right. to this part of the world, what is it that you want to study, because there's some things that... I'd put, up, I'd, I'd put us up against any college or university in the country. What about the economics of the last year? I'm always curious to hear what people's plans were before the pandemic from a budget standpoint and where they actually landed. I assume coming into a conversation like this that you took a huge haircut on your budget, that maybe you didn't bring in as much, but that surely because of all the protocols you had to put in place and all the accommodations you had to make, that you actually spent significantly more. Hard to do any place, especially hard to do at a school like this one where the budget is already tight. So what happened economically for you? Well, we, we, there's not a lot of fat right. uh, here, right? Because we're so small and, and because we're funded. I mean, we have uh, 
you know, the, the, the rules and the regulations many times are meant for larger schools. I used to use the example, when I was in the legislature, the example that I used was the coordinating board has a space model that says you're, you, can, you should only have X number of square feet per student, right? Well, at that time, we had a course here at Sol Ross in farrier technology. And many of the folks at the coordinating board, and frankly, fellow, many of my fellow legislators, didn't know what farrier technology was. Well, that's horseshoeing. We had a degree in horseshoeing. You could actually learn to horseshoe here, right? Well, by the time you put in the horse, you'd exceeded your square footage ah. model uh, that the coordinating board had set for you, right? right. So. One of the challenges is that the rules are, as you say, the, the word is generalized, right? We generalize what a university needs, but we apply it across the board. We apply it every, and, and so, there's some places where it simply doesn't work well. Yeah, well, if you've seen one campus, you've seen one campus, right? <laughs> That's exactly there's, there's right. There's no way to actually generalize. So on the same question of economics, how do you think about tuition for the next year or next couple of years in view of what you've just been through. You know, the old price versus cost versus value calculation, it's not really the right one to have necessarily coming out of the pandemic, coming out of the economic downturn. How do you think about pricing this in a way that is good for the end user, the student and the family, but also provides you enough revenue to do what you need to do here? Our first priority really as we, as we look at how much we need to bring in yeah. is um, we're cognizant of the market that we're in, right? We're, we're cognizant of where we are, who our constituency is, the local economies, what's going on within 150 miles of us. And we really try to key off of what can people in this part of the world, yeah. uh, so you're not going to see... What, what, what they can afford. Right. Yeah, you're thinking that there's not a lot of price elasticity. That's exactly right. right. And, and so we are very proud of the fact that we have um, one of the least expensive um, uh, bachelor's degree programs uh, in, in Texas. If you look at the degree programs in our, on our other three campuses, Del Rio, Eagle Pass, and Uvalde, I think that's currently the single least expensive bachelor's degree yep. you can get anywhere in the state. So we're very conscious of that. I mean, clearly there are times that you have to move up because the legislature provides X percent. And, you know, I mean, the, the truth is that every kid deserves a quality education. So it, I, I used to think of it as a glass, you know, or a bottle. And so if you can raise 30% locally, then the legislature, you need to figure out the legislature's part has to be 70% of that bottle. If you can raise 40%, then that's great. Then the legislature's portion only need, but at the end of the day, you gotta be able to fill the bottle because that bottle is the student's education. Yeah. That, that bottle is the student's opportunity. That bottle is the student's future. And you need to do everything that you can to maximize that student's future. So is the legislature in your mind doing enough to fill its portion of the bottle? in this session, I and mean, we're, we're still a couple weeks out, and as you know, as a former legislator, it's never over till it's <laughs> over. There's a lot of good that can happen in the last three weeks. There's a lot of bad that can happen in the last three weeks, but you probably have a sense of whether you're getting enough in that bottle that what you're asking of your students and families will fill it out. I am really grateful um, that the worst case scenario that we were expecting early on all of the projections that we had run early Well, the economy on, turned out to be better than we thought. Didn't, didn't pan out that right. way. So we're doing much better. We, 
I guess the, the local philosophy has always been that you plan for the worst and you hope for the best. Hope for the best. And so that philosophy actually paid right. off. There's nothing that somebody in your job likes more than a comptroller who revises the revenue estimate up, right? Because it means that there's more money. That's exactly right. Whether you get it or not. Um, what would you say the biggest thing you've learned in the last year that you didn't learn or didn't expect to learn, pardon me, before all this? Something that you now know about this job or about this campus or about yourself that maybe a year ago you wouldn't have necessarily known? There are probably several things that I uh, learned. I, I will tell you that I didn't expect to love my job as much as I do. Um, I think I've had some cool jobs in my life. Right. This is the single most fun job I've had. Why is it so much? What, what, what about day. it is so much fun? You were in the legislature for a long time. You served briefly in Congress. You've been a, an attorney. I mean, you've, you've served in a lot of ways in a public capacity. What, why this? What about this? Well, I used to think that the legislature, for example, was where the rubber met the road, right? Yeah. But now I've realized that there's more than one tire. And so for me here, the rubber meets the road in a very real way. I, I get to interact with the students. Yeah. I interact with the faculty. I interact with the parents and the families. Um, it is a perfect combination. I mean, in truth, this is, uh, we have our own police department. So we have our own uh, water and sewage uh, uh, issues, right? We have our own uh, paving issues. We have, it is very much, and, and plus you have all sorts of policy questions out there and every single day is different. And for me, really, truthfully, the, my favorite part is teaching, right? I, one of the conditions I, I, I said I want to teach if, right. I, if I go there. And teaching has just, I, I, I've enjoyed it tremendously. So I, uh, the, all of those things, um, there's never a dull moment. There's, there's constantly m movement. And I love this place. I mean, I grew up not even a mile from here, right. I graduated from here, this is home. I so, mean, that, 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 that is the point. So you are the first president of this university to be a graduate. I love this place, Is that right? Absolutely. And next year will be your 40th reunion, if I do the math, is that right? Yeah. 40th reunion. Yeah. Um, could you have imagined? Did you have to say that? Did you, it, have, well, to, look, we're did all you old. have to remind we'll just, me that it was 40? Lean in, man, we're all old, that's fine. <laughs> um, could, could young you have imagined, young you on this campus no. have imagined that old you would one day be sitting no. here as president? No, I, uh, I will tell you, I, I, I said that I had a group of kids in here yesterday um, who um, got their rings and did a, a ceremony that we do call a branding ceremony where they, they take a, a Salross brand that's been heated yep. and they brand a piece of wood with it and they get to take it home with them. But I told them this stage that we're sitting, that you and I are staying, th this is the stage I walked across to get a college degree. All those years ago. All those years ago, this right. very stage. And if you had told my fellow graduates, my circle of friends, my, frankly, if you told the faculty back then that I you was gonna, gonna be, be oh, president, yeah, right, they would have yeah. laughed. They yeah. would have said, oh, there are all these other kids who seem to have more promise than this. Yeah, they would have said, see me, keep dreaming. This you guy, know, just, forget just it, keep forget dreaming. it. So, so we keep coming back to this idea that you're a son of West Texas and you're a son of Alpine, right? The, the thing is, you were gone for a long time. Now, you could say, well, not really, because in one form or another, you represented in the legislature or in Congress this place that you grew up. But you're back back now. And I want to know yeah. what that's like. What's it like to be back back? And how different is it now than it was when you were here before? 
I love being home. I appreciate it more now, I think, than I ever appreciated it as a kid growing up here who I think every kid wants to leave home, right? But because I've now seen other parts of the world and been in other places, I love being here. But I will also tell you that it's like having four hometowns for me because I, uh, I get to spend time, uh, you know, I was 27 when I ran for the legislature. I, I, if you had called me a kid back then, I would have been really unhappy with you. But I look back, I was a kid, right? I, right. I, I didn't know anything about Del Rio Eagle Pass, Uvalde. But having had the opportunity, I mean, my favorite elementary school in the world is an elementary school in Eagle Pass, right? Because it's Picayago Elementary. And so now I get to work with Eagle Pass on the educational side. I get to work with Del Rio on the, and, and so I, I feel like I now have four hometowns. Um, right. Because I go to each of them and I know the players, I know the people, I know the faculty, I, I know the community's issues. I helped, uh, you know, the big, huge water fight that at one time between Ovalde and, 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 uh, uh, and Bear County. I can tell you all about the Devil's River. I can tell you all about all of these issues historically uh, that probably other presidents of Saras didn't really know. The, the big well difference is for you, it's personal. It's, it's this place it's, it's and intense, the four schools intensely are intensely personal. personal. Absolutely. I also know that for you, rural Texas is personal, right? Yeah. Um, something I'm going to mention today as I talk to the graduates uh, it is not exactly a revelation, and that is that Texas is no longer a rural state. Despite the myth and despite the stereotype, we have to stop pretending that Texas is a rural state, and we have to accept and acknowledge the reality that it's an urban state. Now, again, you're a son of rural Texas. You run a campus in rural Texas. Your constituents, to the degree that you have them, are rural constituents. <laughs> Will you accept and acknowledge that this is no longer a rural state? Oh, absolutely. But I've known that for a long time. What are the implications of that? They're huge implications. They're, they're um, policy implications. There's financial implications. There's being the legislature determines how resources are allocated. And money an follows people. And, and so, right. you know, when the Harris County delegation in the Texas House of Representatives was having breakfast, there were 25 people in a room. When the Brewster County delegation was having breakfast or the Valverde County delegation was having breakfast or the Maverick County delegation was having breakfast, I was having breakfast by myself. One person. Right? And so when you're looking for votes on the House floor, when you're trying to do different things, um, those numbers matter and they matter a lot. So one of the things I really do love about rural Texas, though, is we're probably more creative about getting things done because necessity is the mother you of You don't invention. have any choice. Right. You have to advocate in a legislature where, again, the numbers are stacked against you. The budget realities are what you just described. Sure. But it's not as if there aren't challenges in rural Texas. I mean, the example that I always talk about because it seems so obvious to me is rural health care. There was a rural health care crisis in this state before the pandemic. We had more rural hospitals closed Closing. in Texas over a decade than in any other state. Nobody had more rural hospitals closed than Texas did. And the pandemic has only made things worse. And, you know, literally at one point we were doing local bake sales to make sure that our hospital stayed open. Literally. Right. That's not an exaggeration. We, our townspeople were cooking and baking cakes so that we could do bake sales to give money uh, yeah. to keep our local And so you have there. to confront the reality of that because as much as you're on this campus and you're leading these students and this is your focus, you can't help but think about all the other ways in which the kids you serve are impacted by whether it's 
rural broadband, rural healthcare, rural public education, rural economic development, right? All of those things end up impacting the way you do your job. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you think differently about the work of the legislature now that you're on the other side? Like, do you think back on it and go, God, what was that? Or is this any way to run a state? I have to believe that you have some perspective the farther you get away from it. You know, I remember being uh, introduced at a um, Lions Club meeting in Del Rio. And the person who introduced me said I was a nice guy and said nice things about me. But, you know, at the end of his comments, he says, you know, just remember the old adage that you can lead a legislator to water, but you can't make him think. All right. And that, that really uh, stuck with me over time. I you mean, were a punchline. You didn't know it. <laughs> Maybe you did know it. But so, it's, yeah, it's well, different. I mean, clearly the legislature has made some, we'll call them interesting decisions right. over time. All right. I mean, they, they uh, but I have such tremendous respect yeah. uh, for the people who serve. I have such tremendous respect for the process itself. I, I will tell you, it's not as much fun now that everything is computerized. Than it, as it was in the old days when you actually had to listen to the messenger from the Senate who would come in and tell you what bills, you know. And there were ways to kill legislation in those days that are not available to you anymore. I mean, I was guilty of um, walking into the, you know, every committee report has to be printed and distributed uh, and, and lay out for X number of hours, right? And there was a group of UT kids who were in a room just running the copiers all day long. and. There was a bill that I was trying to slow down, and so I would walk into that room where the copiers were running, and I would ask the UT students, have you had lunch today? You know, what, what, uh, how, uh, how does pizza sound? Well, well here, here's the menu. What kind of pizza? Gather around. Here, y'all come over here. Let's figure out what kind of pizza. And, you know, I spent an hour, right. uh, and, and there went an hour on the deadline, right? There's a word we can't say on this podcast to describe that that comes back to Watergate. I'm just going to say that it's, <laughs> it's, it's dirty tricks. You were guilty of dirty tricks back then. I didn't think there was any, did Look, when you feed people, how is that dirty? Come on, it's not I mean, a dirty trick. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess when I was asking about the ledge, what I was thinking was, you know because you've been on the other side of the line. You were an appropriator. You served on the Appropriations Committee. I was a conferee for 10 years. You know this. You know that there are choices to make. You can't say yes to everybody. But now you're on this side of the line. You're somebody trying to educate future citizens of the republic, right? It can be frustrating to hear that there are other priorities ahead of you in line. So now, I mean, you're the guy who you used to talk to as the appropriator and tell them no. You're being told no. What's that like? Well, it's definitely different on this side of the dais. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very different that when you don't have a vote and, you don't, and you're at someone else's place. You're just a regular guy like you're everybody else, guy. right? Um, yeah. It is a, a different perspective. But I will tell you that there's probably two or three differences. Number one, when, when I was in the legislature, I tried not to make political allies as much as I tried to make friends. And that has paid off because the relationships that I have in the legislature are fairly deep and fairly longstanding. Um, and even which, to the degree that you chose sides politically then, you can't choose them now. Well, no. I, I, Not I, in your current job. Which you know, was my other option on your last question about what, what is the biggest surprise is one of my biggest surprises is that I thought I'd left politics behind only to find out that there's politics you know, on a campus as well, right? There's, oh, yeah, there's, taking there's the, the politics the, out of higher ed is like taking the, the calories yeah. out of fried chicken, right? I mean, this is not, 
You're not talking about something that it was is like, apolitical. I thought I'd gotten away from this. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I, I do think that, you know, now I can't. And, and, and frankly, in those days, I, I tried to be fair and, and, and uh, accommodating. If, if, if I could make a member look good, I, I, I did. I, I worked very hard at that. And I think that has paid off. So I probably have a better feel for, a better sense of what's going on up there than, than a lot of other people do. Uh, because I still have the ability to yep. text somebody and say, you know, hey, can you uh, tell me what's going on on this issue? And I'll, I'll get a real answer. Yeah. Um, I know you're not supposed to offer controversial opinions, but I'm going to ask you to offer one anyway. And that is, do you think the legislature funds higher ed adequately? This is a persistent topic every session. Is the legislature doing what it needs to do to provide the constitutional guarantee of, say, a university of the first class, although that obviously refers to a university other than Saul Ross. But generally speaking, the principle of providing an excellent higher education is something that we all want, that we all believe the state is obligated to do. Does it do what it's obligated to do? I think the state funds uh, higher education at the level that it can. And having been there as a conferee, I will tell you that the state has never, ever, ever fully funded the higher ed formula. It's never fully funded the public schools formula, right? It, and it has done all sorts of, of interesting things to try to make a budget. Uh, but I was forgiving of the legislature then, I'm forgiving of the legislature now, because I understand every single family understands that you have to make a car payment and you have to make a house payment. And there's certain things that you prioritize above all others, but at the end of the day, you still have to eat and you still have to buy clothes and you still have to buy all of these other things. So I'm very respectful of the fact that there's all sorts of competing interests and all sorts of competing needs. Could we use more money? Absolutely, I, would, I certainly wouldn't turn the legislature down if the legislature said, oh, by the way, we're gonna fund the formula at this higher rate than we've ever funded it but before. But you're not prepared to complain about somehow getting the short end of the budget stick. I can't complain about that because I was one of those guys. Right? You were the guy I, holding the stick. I was the guy, and, and more than most, right? I was the conferee, I was, the, yeah. I was in the Laney leadership in, the, in those days. I, I yeah, I mean, I, I understand. So this is it for you. Right, you've been in the legislature, you ran for the state senate unsuccessfully, you were in Congress, you ran again for Congress, didn't win, but nonetheless, you were on the ballot. I feel like you've been on the ballot for my entire life. Somebody was counting the other day, and I've, I've, I'd run in 36 races, and I'd lost three of them, I think. It's a pretty good record. It's a great record. You had a football team that was 33 and three. That's a championship <laughs> team, right? So, so are you done? Are you done, 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 done? Lock it down, nail it off, that's it, done. Running for office. It's a different Texas now than it was. You didn't say no. All you had to no, do I, was I, say no. Look, if, if you're asking me do I like politics, I will always love politics. Well, I know you love politics. But My no, question is do you want to do it again? Oh, no. I, I'm not running for anything. You're finished. Reti I'm, uh, retire the Gallego campaign signs. Done. Well, no, there's going to be another Gallego campaign, but I think he's 16 years old, and I think he has a few years left before he, uh, before he trots out there. Uh, but I think the next Gallego to be on the ballot is a guy named Nicolás. It's it's not a guy named uh, named Pete. So I look. I I I mean it when I tell you this is the single most. I love this job. I mean, I really love this job. So, 
as long as the Board of Regents will have me, um, as long as the Chancellor will have me, I'm thrilled to be here every single, I get up every morning and I am thrilled um, by the idea of coming to work here. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, Pete Gallego, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Lone Star College, Pearson, Texas State Technical College, the Texas Association of Community Colleges, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.